Well, good morning, everyone. Well, as you heard just now, Tommy read Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 28. If you join with me in turning there, we're going to go pretty much verse by verse. So it'll help if you can have that out in front of you. It's on page 813 if you're using one of the blue Bibles under your seats. Well, the main point of this chunk of verses, I think, is that Jesus has supreme authority, and in particular, over demons. That's what the surrounding chunks are about as well. We'll talk more about that next week. Tommy talked about Jesus' authority over the wind and the waves last week, but here we're talking specifically about Jesus' supreme authority over demons. So without further ado, I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word even in peculiar passages like this, where Jesus casts out a bunch of demons into a herd of pigs, God. Um, in some ways, I think that makes us scratch our heads. Uh, what does this mean? Uh, Lord, I pray that this morning would be uh, a time where we're able to know more of what that means, God, and we're able to know more about you because of this passage, God. I thank you for giving us this opportunity to focus in on a peculiar passage like this that maybe we might be inclined to skip over or wonder about and move on from. God, I, I pray this would be a moment where we would recognize that all of your word is valuable for knowing you, Jesus, and I pray that we would know you better as a result of this passage uh, this morning, God. And in particular, God, if there are people uh, who are being oppressed by demons in this room, I pray that you would cast them out, Lord, in your authoritative name. Amen. Amen. Let's start in verse 28. Read with me, please. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. So, he comes to the other side, this is Jesus that it's describing, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. In the previous passage from last week that Tommy preached on, we saw in verse 18 that Jesus intended to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and after getting in a boat and then calming the storm, that's all the passage from last week, he has now arrived on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, specifically in the country of the Gadarenes where these two demon-possessed men come to meet him. Now, we don't in this passage get much information about the personal experiences of these two men. And that's because the focus of our passage is not on the life-changing experience of these two demon-possessed men. Mark chapter 5, in a parallel version, does go into that, gives more details, talks about the experience of the men. But our focus of our passage this morning in Matthew is specific. Jesus has supreme authority. That's the focus, including over demons. Now, when we talk about demons, there are two overreactions that I hear sometimes that I think we want to avoid. And I mention this because the past few sermons in our series have exposed that we don't all know how to talk about the supernatural. Like, we've talked a lot about miraculous healings, and that's exposed that for some of us, we struggle even to believe in that, or we wonder how to think about it. So I think, and I hope that this would be valuable. These are two overreactions that I want to encourage us to avoid. One of those overreactions is to deny the existence of demons. The other overreaction is to say, all of our problems are demonic. So 
here's the first one. We don't want to deny their existence. I think that's an overreaction. But I understand this reaction because demonic experiences are pretty much always super weird. They're super weird. Look at our passage. This is a weird passage. Okay, the demons have brought these men to live in tombs. That's weird. Notice, they're living in tombs. Dead people aren't, that's weird, right? They've caused them to attack whoever comes nearby. That's weird. They're unnaturally violent people. That's weird. And then the demons are cast out into a herd of pigs who fall off a cliff and drown. That's weird. This is a weird passage. Demonic experiences are weird. And be, perhaps because it's so weird and so abnormal to what we're used to engaging with in our normal life, we might be inclined to explain it away or not really talk about it or ignore it. But I also, I want to push on that. Even though demonic experiences are strange, they are real. They are real. And so it's worth grappling with them, with, not with, it's worth grappling with the concept of demonic experience, even though it's a strange idea. It's worth understanding. Perhaps you just struggle to believe in the supernatural. Maybe you want to explain it away by saying something like this. I've heard this before. Demon possession is just the ancient world's description of what we now know are simply medical problems, right? Maybe it's a physical problem, a biological problem, neurological, psychological, you name it. But every condition on this view is that it can be explained by just science and medicine. Well, the problem with that view is that it denies that demons are real personal creatures. Verse 31, our passage today, the demons speak to Jesus personally, asking him for permission. Medical problems don't do that. These men did not have a medical condition. They were actually possessed by actual spiritual beings, demons. Demons are real personal creatures, and we have to say that. So, first overreaction, to deny that they exist. That's an overreaction. The other one now, overreaction number two, is to say all of our problems are demonic. Let me illustrate what I mean with an example. I like to do distance running. I like long distance running. Recently, I upped my mileage a little bit, and I got some Achilles tendonitis. Did I therefore assume that I had a demon? The demon of Achilles tendonitis? No, I didn't do that. I had an overuse injury. I rested, and it's better now. That was purely medical. So while some ailments are demonic, not all ailments are demonic. There's a few passages that illuminate this. In particular, I'm going to hone in on the issue of seizures in the New Testament. Seizures. On the one hand, there's passages that show that demons sometimes cause seizures, but there's other passages in the New Testament that show that not all seizures are from demonic influence. Let me show this to you. Luke chapter 9, verse 39. This is an example of a demon causing a seizure. And behold, a spirit seizes him. That's a, that's a demon. And, sud and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth. A demon is causing a seizure in Luke chapter 9. But then in Matthew chapter 4, demonic oppression is distinguished from the issue of seizures. Matthew 4, 24. So his fame, that's Jesus' fame, spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, look at this list, those oppressed by demons, comma, those having seizures, comma. That's two different groups of people who are oppressed by demons on the one hand, but on the other hand, separately, who are having seizures. So not every Seizure is demonic, to be specific, and then to make this more broad, not every ailment is demonic, right? But some ailments are, it requires discernment. 
a spiritual practice of discernment to determine one case from another. I share all this to say, number one, demons are real. We need to say that. But number two, demons are not behind everything. We also need to say that. There's more going on than just demons in our problems in the world. All throughout Scripture, demons are said to do a variety of things. This is not a holistic list, but to give an idea, in Luke chapter 13, we see that there's a disabling demon who disables a woman for 18 years so that she can't fully straighten herself. She's hunched over. That's one type of work that a demon can do. In Acts chapter 16, Verse 16, there's a slave girl who is possessed by a demon and can then do fortune telling. So this demon enables someone to tell fortunes. That's a different thing. In Mark chapter 1, verse 23, we see that after Jesus has done some teaching in the synagogue, immediately someone who is possessed by a demon cries out and interrupts him. We know who you are, Jesus. So that's another work of a demon. In 1 John 4, 3, we see that demons sometimes prevent people from confessing that Jesus is God. So that's a, a broad list of different kinds of works that demons can do. We're going to talk more uh, in our theology class that I'm teaching at Sundays 8 a.m. If you want to learn more about demons, we're doing a whole section on angels and demons. But for now, let's move on. Demons can do a variety of things. They can do a variety of things. In this particular case, demons have brought these men to live in tombs, they're causing these men to attack whoever comes by. Well, let's see what happens when Jesus comes by. Read with me in verse 29. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So in this passage, the men are the ones who are physically speaking, but it's the demons who are really the ones communicating through the men. So verse 31 makes this explicit. The demons begged him saying, and then it goes on. So really these are the demons' words, not those of the men. But remember verse 28 that says they were so fierce that no one could pass that way. Well, now here they are, and they're not so fierce at Jesus, are they? Jesus is not having any trouble passing by. In fact, when Jesus comes, they feel that their doom is coming, not Jesus' doom. Notice how they address Jesus here. Son of God. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? They know His divine identity. They know He is the eternal divine Son of God. At this point in the narrative, when human people interact with Jesus, they don't know who He is. The disciples don't say that Jesus is the Son of God until chapter 14. We're in chapter 8 right now. Last week, when the disciples were caught in a storm in the boat, in chapter 8, verse 27, they asked, who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? Who is this? It takes another storm in another boat when he walks on water in chapter 14 for them to confess, truly you are the Son of God. But that's six chapters later. The demons need no such lesson. They know who Jesus is. You may remember in chapter 4, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Satan tempted Jesus by saying, if you're the Son of God, do this. Satan was trying to question Jesus' identity as Son of God. It didn't work for Satan. And by the time Jesus comes to these demons, four chapters later than chapter four, they don't even try to question him. They don't even try to question his identity. He has been God the Son since eternity past, 
His identity as God the Son was publicly declared at his baptism in chapter 3, verse 17. His identity was proven in his temptation in chapter 4, and his identity is known by these demons in chapter 8. As God the Son, he has authority over all heaven and earth. You may remember from chapter 4 in Jesus' temptation, Satan tried to get Jesus to worship him, right? And in exchange, Satan wanted to give Jesus earthly authority. Well, Jesus refused, and now Jesus' both earthly and heavenly authority is on display. That includes, by the way, his authority over demons, over these demons and over Satan. So they know who he is. They know he's God the Son. They know that he will punish them. They know that he has authority over them. Their only question is what he's about to do with them right now. This last sentence in verse 29, have you come here to torment us before the time? The demons know that there is a time appointed for them to be tormented. And Matthew 25, 41 tells us that there is an eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That is demons, the devil and his angels. But they know that it's not time yet to be thrown in that eternal fire. How do they know that it's not their time yet for their torment? Well, among other things, on that last day when Jesus comes to bring judgment on the world, Revelation chapter 19 verses 11 to 16 lay this out. I'll summarize it here. Jesus is going to descend out of heaven on that last day, riding a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth, and he's going to have a massive army behind him to bring permanent justice to the world. But Jesus doesn't look anything like that right now, does he? He's not descending out of heaven on a horse with an army and a sword coming out of his mouth. He's walking on earth on foot with at most a few disciples with no weapon. Jesus is not about to bring permanent final justice to the world right now. So they know that their full and final torment is not happening yet. They know it's coming, but they know it's not happening yet. And his appearance here makes them wonder, is he here to torment us early? What's going on here? Well, here's what I want us to notice. Everyone else who came nearby got attacked by these demons. But when Jesus comes nearby, they don't attack him. Instead, they wonder if he is going to torment them. You see that reversal. They were exercising a limited form of authority, not letting anyone else pass by, until Jesus shows up. Until Jesus shows up. Jesus has authority over demons. Verses 30 and 31 read this. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. Again, notice who is in charge here. The demons are not just going wherever they want, whenever they want. That's not what's happening. No, they require God's permission. They're begging him. More than permission, they're asking to be sent. God does not permit them reluctantly, even in this case. He sends them proactively. Verse 32, he said to them, go. On an ultimate level, I hope this is comforting to us. On an ultimate level, God even directs the activity of demons. Nothing is outside of God's control. Nothing is outside of God's command, including demons. 
The book of Job gives us a glimpse into the reality that all demonic activity is ultimately under God's control. This will be on your screens. I'm reading from Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God, that's a phrase that refers to either angels or demons in this context, sons of God, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Stopping there for a moment, all the heavenly creatures are accountable to God and must continually answer to God. That's what's happening there in Job 6.1, including Satan, the prince of demons. There might even be a parallel here between Job 1.6, where the demons present themselves to God, and our passage in verse 28, where the demons come out to meet Jesus, to be accountable to Him. What are you doing with us? Are you here to punish us? Anyway, let's keep going in Job chapter 1. Verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Summary, God proactively offers Job as an option for Satan to oppress. It wasn't even originally Satan's idea, it was God's. This is going to become good news in a moment. Let's continue. Verse 9, then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all he has and he will curse you to your face. Satan is saying, Job only worships you, God, because you've blessed him. If you take away his blessings, if you take away his material prosperity, Job will curse you, God. Just wait and see. Verse 12, and the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So God puts a boundary there. He says, okay, go go bother Job, but I'm putting a boundary on what you're allowed to do. You may not touch Job himself. Later on in Job chapter 2, a similar exchange goes down. I won't read the whole thing here, but then Satan makes another request. God says, hey, that's only because you haven't touched him himself. And then God says, okay, well, you can't kill him, but I'll let you touch him. Again, God puts a boundary on what Satan is permitted to do. There's a lot that could be said about that exchange between Satan and God in the book of Job. But for our purposes here, I want us to notice three things. Number one, Satan answers to God and gives an account to God. Satan does not go wherever he wants whenever he wants. He answers to God and gives an account to God. Number two, when Satan tempts Job, it's because God offered Job as a candidate. It wasn't Satan's idea originally. Number three, God puts boundaries on what Satan is allowed to do. He puts boundaries. In summary, God has total control over Satan's existence, even his ideas. It's with this background in mind that I think we're supposed to understand really encouraging passages, like the famous one in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Read this with me. It should be on your screens. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's why it's encouraging that God offers Job as a candidate. Because this verse is true 
1 Corinthians 10, because God has control over the work of demons and temptation. He knows exactly what you can handle, and he will not permit Satan or any demon to tempt you beyond what you're able to endure. But how often do we say, how often do we say, I've said this, the temptation's too great. I just can't fight it. I just need to give up. It's too great. No, it's not. No, it's not. Yes, you can fight it. You can. God does not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. God may be allowing you to undergo a temptation, right? But if God is allowing you to undergo that temptation, then apparently you can handle it because God doesn't let you go through anything you can't handle. If you don't think you can handle it, you're wrong. God has a higher opinion of you than you two. That's good news. He will not test us beyond what we can bear. We can escape temptations. We can endure temptations. It's never too much for us because God puts boundaries on what demons are allowed to do, and He uses their work as tests that ultimately make us more like God. Joke's on them, the demons. Anyway, okay. It's at Jesus' word in verse 32, go, that the demons are permitted to go into the pigs. Without his word over them, they can't go. Jesus has authority over them. Some Christians, though, become very superstitious when it comes to casting out demons. Some people, for example, will insist that you need to learn the demon's name in order to cast it out because, and they get this from Mark chapter 5, verse 9, where once... Jesus asks the demon, what's your name? He replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. And some people take that and run 100 miles with it and say, we now need to know every demon's name to cast it out. For the record, Jesus only did that once. It wasn't a pattern. And I think he was doing that so that everybody who was hearing it would know that there were a lot of them. But he certainly didn't do it because knowing the demon's name is a requirement. After all, Legion, for we are many, strictly speaking, is not a name anyway. Just saying, it's a statement that there's many of them whose names we still don't know. Sometimes people treat this stuff like we're dealing with vampires in a fiction movie almost. People literally to this day use roots and rings. I've even heard of people using garlic to get rid of demons. But this isn't a fiction movie. Remember, this is real. When Jesus casts out a demon, it's simple. He says, go, and it happens. When we cast out demons, we do so in Jesus' name, and it happens, Lord willing. Jesus' name, by the way, is not some like secret code we staple on to the end of a come out abracadabra and it comes, the demon comes out. That's not how this works. When we use Jesus' name, we are specifically appealing to Jesus' authority. And as we've seen, Jesus has the authority over demons. We don't need to name the demon. We don't need to use roots, rings, or garlic. We appeal to Jesus' authority. We cast it out in Jesus' name, and we command the demon to come out, like Paul did in Acts chapter 16, verse 18. I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her, and it does. That's how we cast out demons. There's no superstition. We simply rely on Jesus, who has the authority. Switching gears a bit. A small word study here. In the whole Greek New Testament, the particular word for demon used in this verse is used only once in the whole New Testament here. And in this passage, we know it it clearly does refer to the demons possessing these two men. We know that. But in the wider context of the Greek language, this particular word for demon also refers to deities or gods or semi-gods or even ghosts, things like that. 
By using this word for demon, God is making an argument here that all other gods and deities, number one, are demons, and number two, are under the authority of Jesus. All other gods and deities are demons and are under the authority of Jesus. I know that's provocative, but would you read this passage with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20? It's in the context of Paul is describing what's happening when pagans are offering sacrifices to other gods. He says, what pagans sacrifice to other gods, they offer to demons and not to God. To demons and not to God. All other religions that worship other gods are not worshiping the true God who is Jesus. They're worshiping demons. But all those religions, all those other so-called gods, all those demons, at the end of the day are under the authority of Jesus. They are under the authority of Jesus. And on that last day, when Jesus comes out from heaven with a sword coming out of his mouth, he will put away all those false religions and all those demons who inspired them. And everyone who's left will worship the one God, Jesus, forever and ever. Jesus has authority over demons, including the demons who inspire the false religions of the world. It seems from verse 31 that demons prefer to have a host rather than to wander. And that may be the case. Matthew 12, 43 seems to indicate something similar that when a demon comes out of a person, it goes around through waterless places and then seeks to come back to its original host. So it seems that way. We can't be sure that that's how all demons function, but it seems that at least for some demons that's the case. But let me tell you one thing that we absolutely know for sure about demons. When demons do occupy a host, they corrupt and destroy them. They corrupt and destroy them. For example, let's look at our passage in verse 32. So the demons came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. These demons corrupted these two men to live in tombs and to behave fiercely to whoever would come by. Also, they corrupted and destroyed these pigs by rushing them to their deaths off the side of a cliff. As obvious as this might sound, demonic influence is never good and is always serious. It is never good and it is always serious. I say this because I've had people say to me, you know, Alden, I think I'd like to interact with a demon just once or twice. I think that would be cool. I just want to tell you, that is an inappropriate attitude. If, if you feel that way, I want to challenge you to not feel that way. Here's why. There's nothing cool about someone being forced by demons to live in tombs, threatening whoever comes nearby. There's nothing cool about that. There's nothing cool about the demon in Mark 9:22 who continually tried killing a boy by throwing him, sometimes into fire and sometimes into water. There's nothing cool about Satan who wants to kill you and ruin your faith and separate you from Jesus. No, on the contrary, 1 Peter 5.8 reads this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. In other words, watch out, be careful. Demons are not cool. Demons are dangerous and terrible. Watch out for them. Don't go eagerly looking for one. Don't go looking for a challenge with one. While we hold on to that warning, and we do need to hold on to that warning, 
Let's also have comfort and peace in Jesus, who has authority over those dangerous and terrible demons. In part, we see that authority foreshadowed here with what that's going to look like on the last day. This scene in verse 32 with the pigs drowning foreshadows the final end that the demons will experience. Revelation chapter 20 verse 10 lays some of this out. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In the same way that here in our passage this morning, Jesus cast demons out and they tumble into water, so they will be on that last day be thrown into an eternal lake of fire. Their falling in water here is a foreshadowing of the doom that awaits them on their last day. The demons did not die with the pigs. Physical damage cannot kill a spiritual being. Luke 24, 39 explains some of this. It reads, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So drowning kills someone when their physical lungs fill with water, right? But demons are spirits. They can't be physically drowned. They're not physical beings. Their end will come. But it's not yet. It's not yet. With that said, though, there is a bit of irony in our passage. The demons ask to dwell somewhere else, right? They, they make that request to Jesus. But they only get to dwell there very briefly, right? The demons ask to enter the pigs. But immediately after entering them, the pigs drown under the demons' influence. Talk about frustrating. Presumably, after that, the demons would then need to find yet another host, right? The lifestyle of these demons causes their own frustration. As soon as they think they have a new host, their new host dies. As soon as they think they're getting their desire, they lose it. I point this out because I think this passage points to the vanity of sin. It points to the vanity of sin. To apply this to ourselves, when we choose to sin, we get to enjoy that experience from here to the edge of that cliff. But then the pigs drown, and we don't enjoy it anymore, so to speak. Those demons got maybe 30 seconds of corrupted pleasure to possess another host. That's corrupted pleasure. Is that how you want to live your life, with corrupted pleasure, temporary corrupted pleasure? Not only is that pleasure twisted and corrupted, but it's also so brief let me give two reasons why sin is less awesome from our passage. Two reasons the sin is less awesome than loving Jesus. Reason number one, it's brief. It's so brief. We may enjoy sin for a while, at most for a lifetime, but then we have to face God. Here's what God says to the Israelites about what happens when we've lived a life of sin and then we face God. Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 17, God says this, I will show them my back not my face, in the day of their calamity. Oof, I will show them my back, not my face. I'll turn away from them. But we're made to see God's face on that last day. That's what we're created for. That's our great hope, 1 Corinthians 14. I will know God face to face, right? So 
We're built for this. Let's, let's repent of our sin. Let's seek God. Let's seek his face. And then let's see his face on that last day when Jesus comes back. That is worth putting aside our temporary desires for sin. God is so worth it. He's so worth it. Don't live for this brief moment which ended in frustration for the demons and will end in destruction for you. Live for the day when you will see God. So that's reason number one, it's brief, it's brief. Reason number two, it's slavery, it's slavery. Hear me out, when we sin, it feels sometimes like it's good for us, doesn't it? It feels liberating, it feels like we're freeing ourselves, right? As Christians, we might be ashamed to say that, but I I think we do experience that sometimes, we feel that way. We feel like sinning gives us freedom. I really wanna steal this so that I can have the freedom of not paying for it. I really wanna have sex before I'm married so I can have the freedom to enjoy that. I really want to cheat on this exam so I can have the freedom to do better than I deserve. I really want to lie and take credit for this, even though it wasn't my idea. I want the freedom of being looked, looked up to, even though I don't deserve it. But that's not true freedom, is it? That's not true freedom. Here's real freedom according to God. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. God says that sin is slavery, not freedom. When we sin, we are oppressing ourselves. Jeremiah 6, 6 captures this well. The context of this is Babylon is about to oppress Jerusalem, but they haven't done it yet. They're about to oppress them. But as Jerusalem is being prepared to be oppressed by Babylon, God says this about their current state prior to Babylon's oppression. There is nothing but oppression within her, and God's talking about Jerusalem. There's oppression in them prior to their physical oppression because they're oppressing themselves with their sin. That's what God's saying there. Freedom in Christ is good for us. It's good for us. Slavery to sin, being oppressed by our sin is not good for us. It's slavery. So, sin is brief and sin is slavery. But life with Jesus is permanent, and life with Jesus is freeing. Let's be free, Mercy House. Let's be free. Let's not share a fate with demons. Let's seek the face of Jesus. Let's not share a fate with demons. Let's seek the face of Jesus. Let's go to verse 33. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So the herdsmen run away. I'd probably do the same thing. I'd be pretty spooked out if all of my pigs just suddenly ran off the side of a cliff from demons possessing them. I'd want to run too. But then they give a report to everyone in the city. Verse 34 says, all the city came out to meet Jesus. So the whole city is gathered, they've met Jesus, and the whole city is made aware of what Jesus did. Notice that verse 33 says, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. So this city did not only hear about how Jesus casted the demons into pigs. They didn't hear just the weird news. They also heard the deliverance of these two men, even, quote, especially. They especially heard about the deliverance of the two men. The fact that this city knew 
that these two men were delivered from demons makes their reaction all the more inappropriate. Look at verse 34. When they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This is a strange and disappointing ending, isn't it? And this is the end of the scene. This is the end, in some ways, of the sermon. I mean, after this, Jesus does leave. That's next week. This is a disappointing ending, isn't it? This is not fulfilling. A more satisfying ending might, might read something like this. Verse 34, when they saw him, the whole city celebrated the deliverance of these two men, and they asked Jesus to stay a while and explain to them the significance of all these things. That'd be way better. That's not what happens. They don't do that. They beg him to leave. They begged him, it says, to leave the region. They're not just like, you can leave. They were asking him, please leave. Get out of here. We're begging you. Why do they beg Jesus to leave? The text is not explicit about this. I have a guess that I, I think is pretty good that they were probably grieved by the loss of their property, the pigs. Now, this herd of, quote, many pigs from verse 30, if you compare the Mark version in chapter 5, verse 13, Mark gives the exact number. It was 2,000 pigs. That's a ton of pigs. They would have been a significant source of income for this city. They would have sold these pigs for food, religious sacrifices, things like that. Jesus just cleaned them out, all of them. That would have been a significant financial hit. Perhaps, maybe though, another reason they may have asked him to leave, they may just have been freaked out by the whole thing. They might just not, not, want, not want any more of this. After all, this is strange, this is uncomfortable, this is disturbing. Just, hey, Jesus, we don't want any more of this. This is weird. Just, could you just leave, please? Please, please, please leave. Maybe that's what they're doing. Either way, our text says that they see Jesus and then they beg him to leave. It reads, when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Talk about the opposite response that they ought to have had. When they see Jesus, they reject him. Earlier in our sermon series, we looked at Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, where Jesus says this to those who never knew him. Matthew 7, 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In our passage, the city is doing exactly what lawless unbelievers do. They refuse to get to know Jesus. They saw him and they ask him to get out. They don't see him and want to get to know him better. By contrast, John 17, 3 our salvation in that passage is summarized in these terms. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, this is Jesus praying, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Salvation is just knowing God. But this city refuses to know God. They refuse to get to know Jesus. They turn him away. This is a bad ending. This is a bad ending. Maybe you're not a Christian this morning. And if that's you, I want to invite you to welcome Jesus into your life. Don't, don't turn Jesus away like this city does in verse 34. Welcome him as the Lord of your life. Follow him as the one who has authority. He invites you to know him today. Take him up on it. Get to know him. Welcome him. Don't turn him away. If you are a Christian this morning, there's a lesson for us too for those of us who have welcomed Jesus into our lives. Sometimes when Jesus shows up, it's messy. It's not always neat, clean, and tidy. For example, Jesus freed these two men from demonic oppression. That's awesome news. That, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. But then the town lost 2,000 pigs from that experience. That's messy. That's messy. 
A modern comparison for us, it's not a perfect comparison, but perhaps a way we could apply this to our lives is maybe someone comes to our church who is coming out of the life of drug dealing or prostitution. They get converted and now they need to leave their line of work because they love Jesus. Maybe also they would need a new place to live. In the meanwhile, they may need some financial help or help with housing. I would hope, I would think that our church community would be right to consider helping them during a time like that. But that'd be costly, wouldn't it? It'd be absolutely worth it. It'd be so worth it. But it would, might feel a little messy, might feel a little costly. Even if it's costly, even if it's strange, weird, uncomfortable, pigs just fell off a cliff, you need, let's welcome Jesus and let's welcome all of the work that he does, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it costs us. Let's not just welcome the work of Jesus where people become Christians and then live happily ever after, right? By the way, that's none of us, right? How many of us are messy? How many of us are costly? After all, isn't that why Jesus died on the cross for you and me? Because we are messy? Wasn't that costly? We may not all have been possessed by demons like these two men in this passage, but we have all been slaves to sin, haven't we? Jesus has come down and Jesus has died for us. That's why we celebrate communion every week. Jesus came down to die. This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant poured out for you in my blood. Drink this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. That was costly for Jesus. That was uncomfortable for Jesus. That was messy for Jesus. Talk about cost. It cost Jesus his life. But like these two men who were possessed by demons, we too needed Jesus to deliver us, didn't we? In our case, from the slavery of sin and death. Jesus set these men free from demons by his authority over the demons. In our case, Jesus sets us free from sin and death by his authority over sin and death. Jesus has supreme authority, amen? He died on the cross, taking our sins upon himself. That's both death and sin that he takes on himself. He dies, he takes our sin. And then, to demonstrate his authority over both sin and death, he rises from the dead. When we take communion, we remember Jesus' death for us, where Jesus showed his authority over sin and death, where he saved us from sin and death so that we could enjoy eternal life with him. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, and he was sent to die. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for coming to die for us. Jesus, thank you that you have authority over all heaven and all earth. God, that includes the authority of demons. God, perhaps this has been a, a disturbing experience, hearing all this information about demons. I know even in my own sermon prep, this was a, a dark sermon to prepare for, Lord. It, it's spooky thinking about demons. It's, it's frightening in some ways. But God, we also... As real as demons are, God, we pray for comfort from you. Our loving God, 
who has authority over those demons. You even use that, those disturbing beings for your purposes of making us more like you, God. You don't test us beyond what we can bear. You won't let them harm us, God, on an ultimate level. And in the meanwhile, we get to look forward to eternal life with you. God, thank you for making that happen by dying on the cross. Thank you that you have authority over demons. Thank you that you have authority over all heaven and earth, God. And God, the way you used your authority was to come down and die for us. What an awesome Lord you are. You are so worth following, God. We want to follow you. We want to follow you who has authority because of the way that you've used your authority in service to us. So thank you, God. May we now live lives in service to you, God. But even before we walk out these doors, I pray that we would just sit and remember your death for us and that we would do that now as we take communion. In your name we pray, amen.